All right, welcome to episode five of Consuming You. I'm Logan, and I'm here with my friend Tim once again. Hey, folks, this week we read The Problem of Types. That's right, yeah. Um, this one was a bit longer. It's, it's one note right away is like it seemed to be talking, it had two subjects actually. It seemed like it could almost have been two sections because the title. Um, is talking about sort of the first of the two subjects, which is uh, if you have an analyst and you have a subject and they're of different types, then you should take that into consideration. Uh, and if you don't, you're going to run into these conflicts. And then the second subject was, um, or at least part of it, the part that's, that stood out to me was he, he really, um, he made a really interesting point about how the subliminal or the unconscious the nature of concepts in that realm are that they're not really clearly defined and they're kind of overlapping and they're not, you know, there aren't these rational relations. It's more like analogy among them all. And that's, he seems to make the point and maybe, maybe this is me partially interpreting it, but he seems to be making the point that that kind of fuzziness is what makes up dreams. And to me, it kind of fills in the question mark of like who makes the dream or does somebody make the dream to, to, for me, that was sort of answered in, in how he was explaining the the kind of the lack of clear boundaries in the unconscious. So those were the two subjects that stood out to me. Did you, is there anything I missed there that you can think of? I, I noticed those, but th there is a lot in this chapter and a lot that, you know, he kind of builds on points he makes earlier. So he says the exact same things, but in a new context to sort of drive home the point. But yeah, that is interesting. There was a discussion of clearly clear traits that you could categorize is one part of the chapter. Another part you could say is sort of delving into that very murky ground of where these ideas originate from and how it is different from our conscious experience. It's the unconscious, which naturally by the name, we don't really experience it, but it communicates to us and the nature of how it forms those communications is vague and, and mysterious still. So you have yeah. that, that contrast. And the chapter starts, I think, in a good way with he talks about disagreement in society, yeah, how it functions yeah. as a vehicle of mental life in society, but is not its goal. Hmm. And I, I thought that was a good intro to what he was about to get into. And it, and it kind of points out that we have so much. Anytime you talk to someone, sort of probably the thing that they're doing is finding what they disagree with what you're saying, not whether they understand what you're saying, but they just brain will immediately offer up, oh, that's wrong because of my context here. I know this about that and that's wrong or my intuition disagrees with that. Hmm. Yeah, it's almost uh, instinctual or if not instinctual, we're, we're very quick to, yeah, if we feel any kind of disagreement, we bring it up sort of right away or we want to. Maybe if we're polite, we don't, but it definitely in that case, it's still an urge we have to push down. Yeah, it was an interesting point there as well. Um, it's, it almost surprised me in some sense to encounter it in this text because it doesn't seem out of place. And yet it um, that point alone, the idea that disagreement is, is sort of this engine of conversation and is somehow crucial. Um, I, I don't know. It, it's, it's what surprises me is that it seems... I don't expect to read that in a book about symbols and dreams, and yet there it is, and it doesn't seem out of place. So I don't know what to do with that, but that's just interesting. I think it's a tool, a tool as an intro. And it's it's a really, yeah, it's its own little idea, nugget of an idea there, because it was surprising to me as well, because normally the character of disagreement is unpleasant. You want people to go along with your ideas or your context, hmm. but you sort of think about it for just a little bit and imagining a society without any disagreement then you sort of reach that utopia right that stagnation that's actually scary because it it says it's suppressed something that we desire in human nature even if on a sort of casual level we sort of it's a little bit irritating but of course we would want to have society where disagreement is valued even though ultimately we're trying to find agreement and whatnot and but it's an intro right for the psychologist's relationship with the patient and how sort of understanding that their tendency may be to just be disagreeable and that the patient's tendency may be to be disagreeable. 
like for instance they they talk about and it's and he goes into types in that point so he talks about for instance extroverts and introverts how extroverts will always choose the majority view whereas introverts will simply reject it because it is fashionable you have these personality traits that are the basis for a disagreement you have different lenses that you're looking at and it's important for the psychologist to be aware of that because there's going to be incongruences with his worldview and the patient's you know they might be harmonious they might be extroverts who value their intuition and thinking and so forth but they you know one may be an introvert and if the psychologist thinks that his personality is the right one to interpret it he may go astray and give the patient ideas that are just his own initial judgments and so mm. forth yeah I, I understand more now what you mean by intro it's it's like a it leads into this idea there's a quote i really like um let me see if i can find it uh he's talking about um an analyst would maybe have the urge to bring his theories you know in and um, kind of try to impose them on the situation but he says uh the analyst's whole personality is the only adequate equivalent of his patient's personality. And that whole concept, um, he, he kind of spent some time on that, and I like it. It's, it's the idea that you can't systematize it, and you, you can't um, have some mechanism for, for, you know, for doing the analyst's job. You need to meet this person, the full personality, with, with your own full personality. And, uh, and so, yeah, the idea of disagreements being somehow crucial or somehow um, yeah, a fundamental ingredient to human interaction, it does seem to lead to that whole, that whole um, idea. I had trouble understanding that because it seems like Jung is contradicting himself and probably I'm misunderstanding something. But, you know, earlier he talks about how you might find yourself projecting onto this person's dream or their experience based on your own personality. And that may not get you the result that you want for helping them understand something psychologically important about themselves. And yet he then goes on to say, as you said, that the only way to confront a person's dream is to bring your wholeness, your the whole of your personality into interaction with that person. You know, And, and in that particular paragraph, he's talking about how do not assume that your psychological theory and technique is perfect. You know, you can't rely on being some kind of Superman analyst that can has the perfect ideas about psychology. It just you we're certainly not at the level. We probably will never be at that level. The only reasonable way to have this interaction is with the whole of your personality. But then again, I'm confused because I thought he had just spent time saying, but that might be a source of error as well. Yeah, I guess the way that that doesn't seem so contradictory to me, because it seems to me he's saying the danger is in relying too much on a system of thought and theories and what you think or what you think you know is true. That's the danger. Um, and it kind of reminds me of what we were talking about either the last episode or the one before where we got onto this really quite an interesting topic about you know, what is it, what does it mean to be me? It's, it's not just my theories and my thoughts. It's quite a bit more. And we all have this fundamental nature. And so, uh, maybe it's that, that sort of that core, that spirit, that, you know, the wholeness of myself that I have to bring in. And maybe, maybe you could even say, be present in the moment and really be interacting with this person with all of me, rather than just my beliefs about the situation, just my systems, you know, and, and, the all my psychological training that I may have had uh, that seems to be the, the the distinction he's making on one hand don't over rely on your theory and your thoughts and your presumed knowledge and on the other hand bring more than that to the table bring your whole self does that make sense that does and it kind of gets into an even larger topic that we've been discussing and that certainly that I've been interacting with which is there are certain things that are sort of unsatisfying to express like things like religion don't you, there's not enough proof in terms of rationality for you to believe that there's a certain religion is true 
And I think that, you know, that's a more, that's a higher level idea in that domain. But the idea of the personality and the individual and like the strength of that, I think is in the same domain. It's sort of unsatisfying to say that on some level, even if we can feel or intuit that it's true, that that's, you know, that the, a good operating system to have, even if you can't rationally say, well, like, yeah, I, I know that I have faults perhaps and that you know individuals can be led astray and we have seen so many examples in history of where you know someone thinks they're doing the right thing but they're just blind to their own incompetencies or or faults uh to to then to understand all of that and still value your intuition or your, your own like inner life, right? So mm. you sort of have both of those contradictions. And that's I think that's kind of what I'm getting as you have to sort of be comfortable with contradictions, which implies mm. you move beyond rationality. Right. You know, I, I was going to ask as you were speaking there, but I wanted to let you finish if it had because you said it, it was unsatisfying. You use that word one or two times. And, and I was going to ask if it was unsatisfying because there's a lack of like a logical sort of water type nature to it. And it's almost like the logic is not even the right tool or, or that, um, yeah, I was, I, anyway, I guess that's my question. Is that the source of the lack of satisfaction is that there's not, um, a logical backdrop or support system to these ideas? I think that is it. And that's, those are ideas that you've introduced more prominently into my, uh, intellectual life i guess to use kind of a uh an odd statement um yeah and there, there's something about that yeah that's you you can't quite come to terms with that rationally you can't argue for it and defend it in a thesis or at least i would have trouble maybe i don't have the intellectual capacity to do so and yet there's something about it that's so useful that you accept it as true even though it is a contradiction you can't arrive there with your own logic and that's been uh, quite a useful or, you know, it goes from unsatisfying to you're sort of like, well, I'm going to be comfortable with contradictions and not understanding things and yet having them play a large role in my life. And that does become satisfying, even though it's logical, right? If you're not using logic to get there, unless it's some kind of like other logic that, you know, I can't, that does exist in some form that I don't know about, but I'm using that's, that's often the case. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I do think, I mean, the more and more, the more time that goes on lately, the more I, I really, it gets, it touches on sort of what we were talking last episode about religion. And I was saying that, and as far as I can tell, it's useful to have two frames. There's like the scientific objective frame, the logical frame. And then on the other hand, there's a more holistic sort of not rigorous at all almost you could almost say counter rigorous in some sense um way of looking at the world <laughs> and uh and i i mean i get a, a good way to put it is that my working theory which is funny because it's quite a logical term but my working theory is that logic just isn't enough and we actually it's maybe just half of what we need and the other half is something like intuition or spirituality or or meaning or i don't know i don't know I haven't found a, a word I'm comfortable with for the for that other half, but and you know th this has come up in my head a bunch, and I I've I've held off from saying it because it's it's um it's just a whole different set of ideas. But I read this book called The Master and His Emissary, and it's all about um, the right and left brain, the right and left hemisphere, uh, and and the way that they actually see the world. And the argument is that they're they actually have different existential modes, and that the left hemisphere uh, is logical um, and it thinks in systems and if if it sees data that doesn't fit its system it basically just ignores the data and you know this is the part of ourselves that can that is good at manipulating symbols it's in psychological experiments um, it's the verbal half of the brain the other half actually cannot speak um, they've demonstrated this in experiments and you know speech is a very sim you use these uh, different symbols um, logical symbols uh, rather than Jung's symbols, I mean. Mm -hmm. But um, 
and then and then the the right hemisphere is all about the bigger picture and um, and of course intuition and uh, and if data comes in that doesn't fit the system that's actually what it orients on and then you can map these back to prey versus um, predator modes of thinking so the right brain is a prey mode of thinking where you're looking out for things that don't make sense or things that are dangerous and the left brain is all about focusing on a target going after this target anyway I I, that keeps coming up in my head, and, and it seems again and again that Jung is not really arguing against left-brain type stuff, you know, systems of logic and firm knowledge and perfection and all this stuff, but he's, he's sort of highlighting the need for something more, something more holistic, more mysterious. Certainly, the right hemisphere is, is very keen on mysterious things. Um, and Sorry. Then, to Go interject ahead. a little bit, it sounds like you were saying earlier that the right hemisphere is the logical side and, and the left oh. is the more artistic, well, hope, but then it... I hope I didn't make, mis, misspeak there. The, the left hemisphere is the logical, um, oh, okay. systems-based, you know, okay. the data doesn't fit, the data doesn't exist. Uh, and uh, and then the right hemisphere is the, the bigger picture, the, the part of our brain that looks out for predators and, and the part of our brain that sort of introduces new systems of thought. So I hope I didn't misspeak there because that would be confusing. Um, Okay. Yeah. So I I don't know (laughs) like how clear that mapping I just tried to make there is, but it keeps coming up in my head again and again as we're reading you. I like it. Yeah. That those ideas. So the mind studying itself, I think is always so kind of paradoxical by nature. You know, can you, measure something without changing it maybe we're not even directly measuring what i mean by mind it's still kind of the structure whereas we can we have the scientists who have said yep here's a structure it's the neurons and the dendrites and you have this sort of omega fatty acid dissolving in this way and that doesn't create a satisfying answer of what it means to have a conscious experience right we're like well yeah these neurons fire but I've looked at those brain scans where people are seeing a happy emotion and this part of the brain lights up. And so we know this part of the brain wreck. None of that has ever been satisfying to me. So like we haven't quite even really started studying what it is we're really wanting to study uh, about these. About It's just like describing uh, architecture, this beautiful architecture. And you can describe how the support and the basis and the steel beams and none of that would be tell you anything at all about what it feels like to look at that mm-hmm. architecture if it's mm-hmm. beautiful enough. Like that's what you really care about, perhaps in the moment, or at least a part of you cares about that. Mm-hmm. And we haven't. Seems like we haven't found the ability to describe that, except, unfortunately, through religious means that you know add a lot of sort of additional ideas about well, you should also behave morally. You know, that's sort of that's kind of act outside of what I'm trying to access these certain feelings or, or experiences that one has Mm. on a spiritual level. But my gosh, we're getting, we're getting into territory that might be hard (laughs) to find our way back from. Well, maybe I I do want to just, I want to just try to speak back what you said and just try to follow it again. Cause I, I, there were some connections there that felt interesting, but I, I just want to try to put that together again. So you were saying that, you talked about architecture and then you talked about, you could talk about like how the beams add the support and all this stuff. And you could break it down into these pieces, which by the way, is a very left brain thing. Left brain loves breaking things into pieces and isolating it and then analyzing. Um, but that doesn't give you the sense of beauty in the architecture. And the beauty is in some sense, or at least in some frames, the more important or the only important thing. And then you move from there to ideas of religion. And I think what you were, getting at was that religion seems to be in some way the most successful way we have of approaching the same kind of appreciation about the human experience as you would by going into a building and 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 feeling you know feeling that the architecture is beautiful and uh but we can't the 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 current sort of secular logical um frame of reference can't seem to access that the the beauty of the architecture or the beauty of the mind is that sort of where you're going yeah that's a good summary of what i was what i was talking about definitely okay Okay. Hmm. 
And, you know, I just, I wish we had the philosophies of 2000 years ago, because if you read philosophy from that time, they're interested in things like eudaimonia or how to live the good life and what it means to do good and to sort of let go of negative emotion. And they talk about conscious mental states in a way that's compelling and doesn't have the sort of hocus pocus, the fairies in the garden type feel to it. Like that religion does. Yes. Mm. Yes. And I feel like you can actually have that conversation without having to believe in anything that makes you uncomfortable because you can check it with your own self. You can say that is what it feels like when I do a good moral deed, or that is how it feels when I'm ashamed of something that I've done. Mm. And it doesn't, I am the judge of that, right? Why is there some supreme being that made everything the judge? It's sort of, it doesn't necessarily follow, at least not immediately. And, and that's not even really my main point of, of contention with religious ideas. I just sort of am lamenting maybe that philosophy has gone to a point where it's interested in the exact precise meaning of language. And mm. are we really experiencing reality as it is? You know, is this all a dream? Like it sort of has entered this really theoretical domain. In fact, yeah, yeah I mean, that's part of it is it's left that, that spiritual domain yeah. that I think you can make sense in, but, you know, very carefully perhaps, but you don't need all these unnecessary um, stories or beliefs that require faith. I don't think that faith, maybe that's my, what I'm rebelling against is I don't like the idea of, believing in faith although there i go contradicting myself again because 10 minutes ago i was saying there's something satisfying about letting go of Mm. the need to be like not contradicting yourself and making perfect sense and using rational. so i'm clearly unclear in my thinking there but you know think about it more i suppose what else can i do i want to comment on one thing in particular you were you're saying um yeah, that the sort of the older philosophies from like Plato and Socrates, to me, you didn't use this word, but to me, the impression I got was like, it's like that philosophy was alive and it was present and you and it was like everyday shit. Like you, you would you would go do a noble thing and then you would talk about what it felt when you did the noble thing, and that was the philosophy that they dealt with, and that it's it's like it's alive in a way, in the same way that that a religious sermon is alive like people are in there listening to this preacher and they feel you know amped up they're like they're it's a living thing that's happening there and and it's tragic that philosophy uh at least what we call philosophy now is it seems very dead in comparison very theoretical not at all present like you talk about philosophy you mentioned philosophy and most people will the you know the, the feeling that comes to mind is something extremely dry uh, something you would struggle to say interested in and not at all relevant to your everyday life. So that's, um, yeah, yeah, I, I don't really have a point there. I just, just the the alive versus dead thing. It's, it's the, that older philosophy seemed very living and vibrant. And then today's philosophy doesn't. And religion seems to have kept that vibrancy. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Yeah, with that with that point is... Something was lost, something something important was lost, a certain way of having conversation and thinking about ideas that now, yeah, has become synonymous with like you're an intellectual bore or you're like mm. you have an ego to even to even say the word philosophy <laughs> says something bad about you, like right. your brain is <laughs> you're too self obsessed or something. Right. Yeah. And uh it's like if you like read a, can you imagine the, meeting somebody in a bar and like, what do you do? And the guy was like, I'm a philosopher, like immediately. Uh, <laughs> You'd be like, Oh great. I gotta go yeah. away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> All right. Well, that, that was interesting. True. Let's let's maybe. Well, so this. here's something that Jung does. He, you know, going back to the traits, he he describes four that are good for evaluation as they're they're useful criteria for removing prejudice, hmm. and they are thinking, feeling, sensing, and intuition. He says, yeah. you know, there's other things like willpower or temperament that you can perhaps use, but those four. Are particularly useful and there's a quote that i'll read because i think it describes what he means by those words very well so here it is 
These four functional types correspond to the obvious means by which consciousness obtains its orientation to experience. Sensation, i.e. sense perception, tells you that something exists. Thinking tells you what it is. Feeling tells you whether it is agreeable or not. And intuition tells you once it comes and where it's going. Yeah, that last one, I, I couldn't quite get a grasp on that. Does that last one make sense to you? No, I, I also had trouble understanding what he meant by intuition. Mm. He he definitely used it in a way that I think most people don't, in a way that I've always been, I think that's one of my strengths, is my my ability to have strong intuitions and then, you know, voice them. And usually it kind of cuts through a lot of, you know, people look at a lot of data and they sort of zoom in on these fine details and kind of get mired in a certain type of discussion, whereas intuition can cut cleanly through that. Mm. And it doesn't feel like that's the way he's using it, at least not entirely. Yeah, you know, I have a hunch. I think that intuition is one of those words that has drifted in meaning over the years. Um, and not just from this text. I, I feel like I've noticed that before, that intuition used to mean something different. So that might be part of what we're running into. I, I don't really know what he means, but I suspect that's part of the confusion. I think intuition used to mean something a little different. Hmm. Yeah, that could be part of the issue here. Hmm. Well, so, and I also like, he, he brought up that classification, and he, and he, as you said, he said it's sort of arbitrary. You could use um, other... Uh, characteristics of people but he I, I liked what he said next which was something like uh, but I find it's it's one of the most useful frames to describe parents to children and a, a husband to a wife or something like that it's like a good way to um, describe other people to a certain person so that's uh, that's an, just an interesting way of sort of he, he said that's how he judged the merit of this classification system I, that's certainly popular. I think it's a popular idea where we know that some people are thinkers, right? Mm. They like to just think about things and like not trust their first instinct to do something they believe is wiser. And some people are feelers. They're like, well, this is just wrong. I can't articulate to you exactly why it's wrong, but I won't participate in this or, or vice versa. We absolutely need to proceed in this way. I feel that it's right. Uh, but the sensing and intuition that, you know, to put those in the same category, I think there's, there's, you could have a good reason to do so, uh, you know, as far as describing someone's thinking characteristics, their feeling characteristics, their sensing and intuition. Those ones, though, are sort of less in my culture. I have a less understanding of how to differentiate people hmm. between intuitive and not intuitive or how they use their intuition, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, I, I'd like to talk just a bit about um, I, I, that sort of the second subject that that was prominent to me, which is the whole idea of um, the unconscious, or he, he also seems to call, he has another word, which is the subliminal, um, mm -hmm. that seems, he or seems psyche. to mean, yeah, well, the psyche seems to be the, the entire thing. Well, that's how I've been interpreting it. Do you think he means something more? more like the unconscious uh, with when he says psyche no that 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 may be true well finish what you're saying perhaps i interrupted too soon but i think in the moment i thought they were all kind of interchangeable but now mm. i hesitate to think so okay well anyway he um he the and i can't even remember how he says it but the impression i now have is that you know we have our conscious minds which um, is all about logical distinctions and um and, and rational relationships between things, uh, which again, the right and left brain thing comes up for me because that's very left brain. And then, he, and then he's, he's painting the unconscious as there's no clear boundaries, there's no distinctions, there's concepts there, but they're not strictly defined against one each other, uh, against one another, and the relationships between them aren't rational. They're more uh, based on analogy. Um, and and now the image that I have of how a dream gets created is, is that, because he also says that as these concepts uh, move more towards the liminal, so more towards your consciousness, they gain clarity and they gain um, these, these firm uh, boundaries between concepts. And that he says, if they move, if they move far enough 
in that direction, then, then that you're, you're not dreaming anymore because you're conscious, because you're just thinking clearly. And so to me now, I have this image of a dream is what happens when you start to pull that stuff out of the unconscious and it starts to gain clarity, but you don't go all the way into consciousness. So I don't know. What do you think about that, that whole, uh, all that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a good hypothesis. I don't know if that's the canon in psychological understanding. When Jung was talking about that, he contrasts that idea with what Freud thought about the sort of vagueness and why dreams seem evasive and unclear. Mm. And I believe Freud's hypothesis was that the dreams are often showing you something negative in your about yourself or about your reality. And there's a sort of blotting out effect so that you can sort of sleep through it so that your sleep is restful. And Jung is dissatisfied with that idea mm. says well no 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 it's it's just a matter of where these dreams come from you have this unconscious state which has a lower level of tension right than the conscious I state that phrase. of ideas it didn't make yeah, sense at absolutely. first but but i really like it a lower level of tension right mm-hmm. and as soon as you know at that level and he, i think he says the psyche at that point mm. there's a lower level of processing and there's a freer association among all the vague ideas floating around in your brain. But as they move towards kind of more understood and more clear in terms of conscious understanding, they cross a threshold and are no longer coming from the unconscious. Right? They're no longer a dream at that point. Now it's more about the, the, the conscious level activity. And so I think for Jung, that disqualifies it as a dream. You're no longer having the unconscious communicating something to your conscious. It's now just, here's my conscious experience hmm. of an idea. Or, and I wonder if also you could say maybe at that point it has been communicated to the conscious. And as we're talking here, I, you know, um, I wonder if part of, you know, the communication is you start from total unconsciousness where you can't even really be said to have an experience at all. And as it comes clearer, you know, partway through, we call that a dream. And then the next step is wakefulness and then maybe thinking about the dream. And maybe that is just the, the you know, the process of that communication. It could be. Yeah, it could be a, a successful arc. I'm talking about it as if there's some kind of failure. But certainly to the extent that we have any understanding of it at all, really feels like it's all conscious. We don't have an experience of our unconscious supposedly is communicating mm -hmm. but any communications that we get surely must be conscious otherwise we couldn't articulate them i imagine yeah, yeah. Hmm. there's another there's a quote here that i really like on this whole idea um and it's as a plant produces a flower so the psyche creates its symbols i really love that um it for me it Make, it sort of paints this image of that there's not really, there's no conscious planning. It just kind of occurs and unfolds. There's like an unfolding, um, but there's no, there's no author, you know, no one, no one made the flower, no one created this flower, but it came out of a natural process. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was beautiful language. This chapter was the most well-written one. Like a lot, there was several phrases like that that were so apt and good and, and poetic in this, you know, this book isn't, it's, it's about what's, what is the distinction again? There's prose and then there's the other kind. And I think prose is the one where it's sort of starting to be clear, whereas maybe poetic is the opposite, where it's sort of trying to be more symbolic, perhaps, or more beautiful language that's less clear, but, you know, has, mm. has deeper meanings. So he's writing a book about psychology, but he's, he uses these beautiful analogies that feel more like poetry. Yeah. Yeah. To get his ideas across. Yeah, that was great. As I, I loved that. You know, I think uh, unless you want to linger on any of these other topics, I'd like I have a written down several of the dreams that Jung has identified or, or has connected with an idea for mm. his patient. Maybe kind of useful to go through them to show the level of analysis that Jung does. What do you yeah. think? Yeah, sounds good. Let's do it.
Okay. So because, you know, we have been reading our dreams aloud and sort of giving like, well, maybe it means this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've still unsatisfied with my own level of analysis because the examples that Jung uses are so advanced psychologically that I'm like, I'm nowhere near that level. And I, of course, maybe I shouldn't expect to be because I'm not a psychologist and had had virtually no education on it. Uh, but it illustrates the the sophistication that you can have. So, for instance, one of the dreams in this chapter was about a man who had a very high opinion of himself. He was dreaming of a drunken tramp rolling around in a ditch. And the interpretation of this dream by Jung was, or what Jung helped him to realize was that this was an attempt to offset his inflated opinion of his own merits, that his unconscious was trying to to stop him from having these inflated opinion of himself. But it was also a link to his brother, and the man's brother was a degenerate alcoholic, and the dream was revealing that his superior attitude was compensating for his brother's behavior and that he had internalized his brother in some sense. Mm. So that's one dream. There, there was another dream where a woman who was proud of her intelligent understanding of psychology had dreams about another woman, which in ordinary life, she didn't like her. She thought she was dishonest. But in the dream, the woman did like her. This, the woman was like a sister, friendly and whatnot. And what Jung and this woman came to realize was that the idea being conveyed by the dream was that the woman who was having the dream resembled in some way the woman that she didn't like in real life but liked in the dream and what the dream was trying to tell her was that there's this you have these uh, hidden motivations these unconscious influences that are disagreeable to you that you know subconsciously are, are causing you some suffering and you're blaming the other woman because you see the same things in her uh, and you refuse to blame yourself for them mm. Do you, does that do you do you feel like I conveyed that properly? Yeah, yeah. No, I I actually well, on the second one you you made it actually more clear. Um, I followed and when I read it, I followed some of that, but uh, but not not as much as you just made clear to me now. Um, the idea that she, that the dreamer or the subject, uh, that that some of her dislike of this other woman was had to do with her own dislike of some of her own qualities or or some kind of i guess just more generally like some kind of subconscious contradiction inside of her and this other woman that appeared in her dream was sort of speaking to you know representing and, and showing like this affection a positive emotion where her consciousness is telling her the story about a negative emotion and so it's it's a way of bringing out that uh that contradiction so that's interesting yeah and i just thought that was so common it's so often that people project their own insecurities their own faults on other people it's it's like practically a rule of life that mm-hmm. we all tend to do that we complain about things that secretly we we hate about ourselves right, but we right. project it onto other people yeah or a related idea is, is it's I, I think it's pretty much what you're saying is uh it's the things, it's the flaws that you have that bother you the most when you encounter them in other people. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's good. Well, let me just read one more. There's two more, but just for the sake of brevity, <laughs> I'll read one more because I really like this one and I, mm. and I, it seems salient to my own life. So there was this other man that was having dreams that Jung was helping him with. And he, this was an interesting dream because it's not, just that the shadow it's not just negative emotion per se that our unconscious tries to correct so in this particular case the man was modest and self-effacing he had charming manners and he was content with taking a back seat uh, but discreetly insisted on being present and so he would have the ability to sit in silence but if his opinion was asked he would offer a very clear articulate intelligent idea and in his dreams, he had these encounters with great historical figures such as Napoleon or Alexander the Great. And Jung saying that these dreams are clearly compensating for an inferiority complex. 
but really, you know, that, that's why he's he's meeting like he has these illustrious callers that are to his dream. His unconscious is telling him you're actually you are brilliant and smart and you should be taking less of a backseat, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But it also points out a secret megalomania, which offsets the dreamer's feeling of inferiority. So you have that that contradiction. He has both an inferiority complex and he has megalomania. He knows how smart he is. Hmm. And those things are in contrast there. And the dream is perhaps trying to, or is symbolic of both of those contrasting uh, personality traits. Right. Yeah, and you, a phrase he uses like, this guy is living an insane life. It revealed that he's living in some sense, an insane life where he, I, I don't want to, I don't know where, what the quote is exactly, but. I remember that passage as well, but I don't have it right in front of me. Oh, here it is. He was in fact unconsciously playing an insane game and the dreams were seeking to bring it to the level of consciousness in a curiously ambiguous way. Hmm. And I just like to tie it back to myself or not really, I mean, these are, you know, this is something that I've already gotten past or the bulk of it I've at least acknowledged and have tried to move past, which is this aspect of shy people. And this may be an unfair critique, but I think this is actually a common problem with people who are shy that may be controversial is that they actually have giant egos. They have this sense of their own brilliance or the richness of their inner life that maybe they feel like they can't quite express, but they're certain is there. And perhaps they avoid or, you know, flub social interactions, or let's just say they avoid, regardless of whether they flub them or not, because they're worried that they can't bring across how great they are, that they're worried about being rejected in some way. Mm. And they're, they're too good to be rejected. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. It's like you're you're afraid of having that um, your private uh, inner beliefs about how cool you are or whatever. Um, and then you, and then if you put yourself out there and nobody's impressed, well, that that's a that's a scary prospect. Right. Yeah. And I think it's quite quite that that was useful for me because I think. A lot of people see their shyness almost as a positive trait, perhaps, and not 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 quite necessarily, but a sort of charming thing about themselves. And it's like, oh, if only I was extroverted, you know, it really may be more negative than you think, and something that has to do with your your ego in a way that I found, you know, kind of insulting. And you sort of reject the idea, perhaps, out of hand because it's saying something bad about you if you're shy. But if you accept it as true and let it, you know devolve into your brain it can be useful in how you approach uh, social situations Hmm. right well what do you think do you want to move to the last part of the podcast where we talk about our dreams or did you want to discuss anything else from this chapter there was one i'm just trying to find it on that on that one guy the last the last dream of that you brought up that you just shared and this is the quote this unconscious idea of grandeur insulated him from the reality of his environment and enabled him to remain aloof from obligations that would be imperative for other people. He felt no need to prove, either to himself or to others, that his superior judgment was based on superior merit. And mm-hmm. I don't know what my point is exactly, but there's something in there that seems um, relevant, which he... He was finding a way, you know, playing this, living this sort of insane contradiction was somehow enabling him to avoid. It's like he was, well, it sort of reminds me of what you were saying about shy people. Um, you know, he, it's like he had these secret beliefs that he had, you know, intelligent contributions to bring. Um, but because he didn't really fully approach that idea, he never really, um, he never had to prove that then to himself or to others, which then led, leads to an inferiority complex because you, you know, if you secretly believe something, but you're kind of too afraid to bring it out and test it, you're, you know, obviously it's going to introduce doubt, which is a similar doubt as uh, what you were just saying with, with being shy in general. Again, you have this private life and you're afraid of it collapsing, you know, when the, when the outside world doesn't agree with it. So you kind of hold it inside. What's the, what's 
compelling to me about that, that really does add a significant edge to that dream. And the way it contradicts with my thinking is I see wisdom as silent. So you sort of imagine meeting Aristotle or someone like him, the Buddha perhaps. And when I imagine that encounter, I imagine that they would feel perfectly comfortable being silent. They don't need to talk about their ideas and how great they are and smart they are. Mm. So there's, a, there's a difference between intelligent people and wise people. And I see wisdom as tending towards silence and being comfortable with inner life mm. in a way that just even expressing any idea somehow seems... <laughs> maybe this is a bizarre framework, but somehow less confident in your understanding or less assured perhaps, or, or less of just that feeling of being, you know, in the right place in the right moment, attuned with the moment. Anytime you try to think out loud, uh, maybe I'm straying away from what I'm trying to articulate here, but in that, what I'm saying is I think that silence is a sign of wisdom. And I think you can have it without the inferiority complex. You can actually have the best idea in the room, not articulate it and be fine with that and not feel that it has anything to say about your your character right well i guess it depends on what is at stake you know i mean if you're in a room with people you don't care about and 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 uh you have an idea to express i mean i, I certainly have, have been in a conversation where i could speak up and share my opinion that is differing from other people and of course i you know we generally believe that we're right about what we think and but i just don't it's just not worth the effort because you know maybe it's going to be hard to explain or Maybe it's going to be unpopular, but, but, you know, and so, so then, you know, you can be comfortable in that kind of silence, but then there's also a way in which it would be more of an escape. And if people are, you do care about are talking about something that you find important, uh, you know, maybe just as an example, you're talking to some friends and family about uh, someone you all know who is an alcoholic and they're trying to figure out how to solve this guy's problem. You know, if you actually have something to share there, but then you don't that you know you're you're potentially sort of ignoring a call to responsibility i mean in some sense it's your responsibility to share what you believe to be a true opinion so and it not a true opinion but but a but a valid uh input and um and so the, if this guy that that uh, jung is talking about if he's in that situation and then he's reluctant to to bring up something um and if it's secretly motivated by some kind of inferiority slash megalomania weird complex that would be i guess that's just how i could see you know that's too much silence or it's the wrong kind of silence and you're actually missing out on um a meaningful life in that case yeah well well said the context really matters and i was imagining that sort of context that of of your in a kind of social setting and, you know, someone's saying something that's just so wrong, but you can sort of look at them and understand their character and know that if you articulate your position, which you feel strongly is, you know, a better frame to look at the issue, mm. you're going to get mired in all sorts of pointless discussion. And, you know, you may kind of compromise your own virtues or character in the process of talking with this person. That's right. kind of what I was thinking. Whereas in a professional context where you have responsibility and your insight might save a lot of effort, a lot of money, a lot of just frustration. You really are obliged to speak. And if you're one of those types that is sort of like kind of thinking and thinking and trying to form the perfect way of saying what you need to say and the conversation moves past, whereas if they just said, hey, what do you think, Bill? Mm. You would have articulated it perfectly. That maybe creates a, a sense of frustration that I think mm. a lot of, especially young professionals deal with. They get into a room full of experienced people they have like, I know what to do here. I feel like I need to know, but how can I speak when they all speak so well? They're just not saying the exact right thing that I feel needs to be said. Hmm. All right. Well, I am happy to move on to dreams if you are. Yeah, Our absolutely. Own dreams, rather. All right. I can start this time. Um, I'm actually quite excited to share my dream. Uh, it, it, was, it was probably the most meaningful dream I've had. Um, that I've shared, even though it's, it's very short. Um, but anyway, here it is, and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, I'm sitting with Dehandri, uh, that's my girlfriend I'm living with at the moment, at a campfire. 
and I've just invited a man to sit with us. He is a canonical American native you might see in a movie, large, muscular, and quietly stoic. I have a desire to befriend him or gain his respect, but I don't expect him to speak throughout the dream. I have a small triangular stone that has some writing in a foreign language on it. I am looking at the stone and trying to carefully pronounce each word on it in turn to the man, watching him and trying different pronunciations for each word until he nods or gives some sign of understanding. I do this for all three words that are on the stone, and then Dehandri suggests I give the stone to him. Um, this whole thing feels like a ritual, or it feels like I'm sort of trying to... Uh, yeah, it's, it's ritualistic. I'm trying to, almost like a tradition, like I'm trying to make the right steps. The stone is a bit like a crude knife, a long triangle with a sharp point. I turn it so the handle is facing him, and then hold it out to him. He reaches to take it, and during the handoff it's dropped, but he quickly picks it up and doesn't seem offended. He then sits facing away from us, away from the fire, for quite some time. He doesn't seem offended, just con contemplative, like he is deeply considering what response he should make. He makes no response, but he has not left the fire. And then that's, that's the whole dream. So what are your first impressions? I'm really trying to think symbolically. I'm trying to learn or use what I think I'm learning from reading this. And here are my first thoughts that the man is not really a man. He symbolizes a whole country, America. Even the way you described him made me feel like that was the case. He was canonical. He was perhaps a, a sort of strong America. And America is a powerful country. So I think like visions of strength and muscular nature mm -hmm. is is powerful. I, I, did, I and, did. He's an American native. So like an Indian or whatever. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, well, maybe that changes it because really the Native American is no longer a common symbol for what America is today. In fact, they're quite different. Hmm. So maybe my whole interpretation scheme is is falling out here. But I see you engage in important work, you know, and it's sort of work that's difficult to articulate to people. and But you want to describe it to an audience that you don't necessarily get feedback from as well. You want to describe it to a large audience and you're perhaps in a state in life where you have done this work of articulating something and now you're, you're waiting on feedback and it's important. You want that feedback to be good, but you're still waiting hmm. from this enigmatic character, whatever that is. Maybe it's the United States, maybe it's the whole world. I don't know. I really, now I don't understand what that character represents, but that was my first interpretation. Right. Okay. Well, that, that is interesting. Um, and I think I actually, so I have a totally different interpretation that I actually feel quite strongly about. Um, mm. But there was part of it that, that um, maybe strikes true too. And it, it makes me wonder generally, you know, it seems likely to me that these dreams would have multiple um motivations and so you might have several different interpretations that all are kind of true or um or well i, I don't know if true is the right word but anyway so um well anyway the, the the part about what that you said that seems relevant is trying to do something and, and not getting much feedback and kind of waiting on the response because that is yeah that's definitely part of my life these days but anyway, so here's, well, so first of all, I woke up in the middle of the night around 3 a.m. or something, and I, and I had this dream, and I already felt it was very symbolic, but I didn't understand any of it. Um, uh, but I, but, you know, knowing that we're doing this podcast, I wanted to go write it down, so I did. Uh, and, uh, and I told DeAndre at the time, like, uh, it just felt really symbolic. And, uh, oh, I, you know, sorry, I'm, and now I'm remembering. I actually, I actually stayed up after that. So it must not have been in the middle of the night, but it was early morning. So I, I wrote this dream down and then I, I don't remember if I went to sleep for a bit or not, but I woke up very early or, or stayed up in any case. And, um, I thought more about it. And so here's, here's what I think the, 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 I think the American native actually represented, um, my unconscious and my the part of myself that I don't understand uh, that I've been trying to explore and kind of welcome in some sense, not only just reading this book, but also with my ex exploration into religion and kind of trying to reach outside of the logical or left brain way of viewing the world and get in touch with these other parts of myself. And um, 
and it does, you know, the, the whole experience of trying to read this stone to him and then giving it to him, as I said, it felt very ritualistic and it felt like I was trying to make offerings to him. Um, and that reminds me a lot of just, uh, as I said, a few episodes ago, I'm trying to do more of a free running sleep schedule where I sleep when I want. And that's very much an offering to the, the more comfort based, um, unconscious part of myself. You know, I, I could try to maintain dominion over myself and, uh, and wake up at 6am every day. But, um, instead what I'm trying is to, you know, offer that part of me that is not getting on board with that. I'm saying, okay, we'll just sleep whenever and see how that goes. Um, and, and I am, you know, I don't feel like I've gotten clear responses and clear successes or victories from that whole endeavor. Uh, but I do feel like I'm still willing to wait. And I think that's what his, uh, apparently contemplative nature after I gave him the stone and performed this ritual or whatever. I think that's what that indicates. And it's also really interesting that I woke up really early that day. I don't wake up. I was up at either six or seven and I've typically been sleeping in. And this is one of the few times where I woke up and, you know, the first time I woke up, I'm just getting out of bed right away with energy rather than sort of waking up a few times and finally deciding to get up. And yeah, so that's, that's my interpretation of the dream well i give that dream an a i think it's i think it's exactly what kind of dreams we want to be having to the extent so that you can actually interpret the symbolism and now your idea of the native american i think is is spot on but it's interesting is that you talk about him you're saying you're talking about yourself your native yeah you that native american is you and that's such a good thing because you are a native american not (laughs) you know like what Columbus found, but you were born in America. You have American culture in you. Hmm. And that's perhaps you feel is a strong part of you, especially when you're in a different culture. You realize how big a part of your culture, how much of your culture you carry in you. Perhaps that's needing to be asserted or you're feeling that it's important and you want to go back to that or, or sort of be more in touch with that in some sense. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely an element of, um, some deeper, some roots in me that I'm trying to address or, or yeah, get in contact with. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a great dream to have anyway. So, um, thanks for the a, uh, that's great. It bumps my GPA up, which is really important. Uh, <laughs> um, I gave it grudgingly. <laughs> uh, yeah. Do you have any more thoughts or shall we go into your dream? Uh, let's move on to the cool dream. Okay. <laughs> the yeah. People, the dream people are here for. Okay. Uh, so just just some context and maybe a question for you. The context is I talk about you, both you and our mutual friend Jason hmm. is in this dream. Um, how would you describe Jason in a word? The words that are coming is either fun or funny, honestly. Okay, those are good. I, I I have I think a similar irreverent. Yeah, that's that's a better word. You know, I was reaching toward a better word, and that's definitely it. <laughs> so it's like that's how he's funny. He sort of like does not respect social norms in a way that's hilarious, in a way yeah. that we shouldn't describe here. Yeah, <laughs> but he he's like a a funny irreverent guy. Okay, that's important for the story, perhaps. Okay. Uh, and okay, the other thing, and I wanted to clarify with you is there's actually some curse words in this that i'm not sure if i want to like sort of there it's actually quite crass mm. uh should i censor that in some in way or allude to it, it is. I, I think leave it because i mean i've already i think earlier this episode i've cursed and i certainly have before i i'm not worried about that personally okay well apologies in advance to if you're a little baby the... apologies you little baby <laughs> gentlemen and ladies babies <laughs> yeah um but so then again, this is not, this is my dream. I'm just reading it to you. I didn't arrange this. My unconscious did. Okay, here it is. <clears throat> I am in a Chinese airport with Logan and Jason. We are in a food court area. Jason opts for Subway while Logan is getting generic local food. I'm at a table and Logan has come back with his tray of food while Jason is still at the counter for Subway waiting. An older man starts to speak loudly. Instantly, everyone in public starts to look at him. He says something about how coronavirus isn't a big deal. Jason loudly disagrees with him. 
The man is surprised by this and starts to say something placating. Jason retorts with, how how about you suck my dick? The man (laughs) is offended, starts to move towards Jason with aggressive intent. I tap Logan and say, dude, we got to step up. We both stand and move to defend Jason. Logan arrives first and grabs the man's shoulder. As I'm walking forward, I feel that when I arrive, I will stick my middle finger into the man's face and tell him to fuck off. And I wake up before I get to him. (laughs) Nice. That's a fun one. So, I, uh, I, I have some vague interpretations, but, uh, but what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I like it. Um, some other context is that we three have traveled together. So um, it kind of explains a little bit of the context. And it's also mm-hmm. interesting. Including, mm-hmm. including, if I might add, that Jason, like the part about him getting Subway is funny to me because yeah. we were in Peru together and he went to McDonald's twice. So you're yeah. in this amazing culture where they have really good food. And he's like, let's get the fast food, like the crappiest food from back yeah. home. And he partially twice. does it just for the shock value. Like he does it because he <laughs> thinks it's fun to go get McDonald's in Peru. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's all about the comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> and and Jason, I don't know if he literally yelled that to somebody across the cafeteria, but uh, but it certainly is not far off from his personality. As far as symbolism, um, let me think. I mean, I'll, I'll just I'll guess at the symbolism first because that's how we did it with my dream. Is you guessed first. Um, well, one thing that occurs to me is that in the dream, you yourself aren't really initiating many actions. It's, it seems to be mostly focused on me and Jason. And so I wonder if, um, well, I mean, it, just like uh, with Jung, he was saying that uh, the one guy sort of internalized the idea of his brother and it represented something in his psyche. Um, Jason clearly represents like this, uh, you know, uh, I mean, in the dream, he he sort of, without care without tact just like loudly just was just like hey no actually fuck you you're wrong or whatever you know and and then just like making the point but sloppily like it's not like he's designing this point to be carefully considered he just is speaking out and so maybe that would represent uh, an impulse or, or if not an impulse maybe just a respect for that approach um and then uh and then i walk up to him put my hand on his shoulder which I don't know. Well, of course, you do say Let, we got to step up. So, yeah. Right. I, yeah. I don't know. Interesting. Right. That that was the one thing is, like you said, you don't initiate. And I think that's true in much of the dream. But there is that one moment where I see the aggression of the man and I say to you, yeah. we got to step up. Yeah. And then you move forward and you grab the man's shoulder. Like, that's an aggressive thing to touch somebody. Mm. And I don't ever actually get to him. And, yeah, I think... I so I'm really curious about what the man symbolizes because I think that's oh, really no. important. The man says this isn't real. I think right now my I expect that many people are having pretty powerful dreams right now because of how psychologically disturbing coronavirus is. How we're all hmm. locked up in our homes. We're facing this invisible enemy. We're dealing with fake news and we're, we're constantly shifting our own opinions. At least I am yeah. like rapidly based on new information, which I think is the right way to go. Hmm. And so part of what I was thinking about is I've been having discussions with people, both online, people I don't know at all kind of responding to their comments, which I rarely do, but I'm for some reason inspired to do so at this time, but also in my personal life with friends, you know, I'll have disagreements about, how the government should be acting. And what's kind of surprising to me is that I'm defending ideas that I never thought I would defend. Like for instance, I'm defending like big government. I'm defending their ability to arrest people or find people for doing things socially that I don't find acceptable Mm. in the midst of a pandemic, which I would be flabbergasted to hear myself on you know, a recording of myself making that defense without the context of the times that we're in. Hmm. And I think something about this dream is communicating that something's off about how I'm communicating or how I'm behaving right now, that maybe I misaligned with my values, that I'm just utterly confused and something is being pointed out to me because normally I wouldn't be this aggressive. Hmm. I wouldn't be like, hey, let's go defend. I mean, I, I imagine I would be, but that's just sort of 
out of character to me. And I think that's quite interesting that I'm doing something that I doesn't feel like I would do it in real life. Right. It's often what you have, what we've seen in these dreams is people acting completely the opposite of, of how they think of themselves. Mm. Yeah. That, that is an interesting um, way of thinking about it. Uh, yeah. You know, going, getting into a, potentially getting into a fight. I mean, I think that's just very against both your and my nature. Um, and so it's interesting, and I think you're onto something there to say that if that happened in your dream, the message, insofar as there is a deliberate message, could be, you know, you're in a situation where you might be doing these kinds of extreme things, you know, getting into fight, getting into a fight over some uh, verbal dispute about what, you know, what the correct outlook is on the on the coronavirus, or just more generally. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, what do you think as far as a grade? A plus or A plus plus? <laughs> I think B plus. Golly. Yeah, That's sorry. three weeks in a row where I, <laughs> I'm like an increment lower than you. I and know. you know, it's really it's chapping my, yeah. my ego. Sorry. But it's important for my ego, so I'm not really that sorry. <laughs> fair. <laughs> totally fair. Yeah. I get that. <laughs> I got to look out for okay. number one. Well, folks, it's been real. It's been real, real. All right. Um, all right. Tune in for episode six. Uh, you know, one day it'll happen. Probably in a week. That's Probably in one week. Exactly. Yes, okay. indeed. All righty. Okay. Peace, guys. Peace.